Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody from our extended break. My apologies, but now we're back with Running the Rift, a League of Legends podcast, episode number seven. A guest who I'm extremely excited about, uh, Jensen from Maryville University. An absolute plethora of coaching experience, a wealth of knowledge, and a coach, in my opinion, who takes a unique approach uh, to development, to improvement. And to me, it just seemed like a great opportunity to discuss that so without further ado let's jump right into the episode what is going on everybody welcome from a brief break to the next episode of running the rift and our guest today is someone who i'm super excited about uh someone who i'm uh very very interested in learning about their processes about you know the way that they do things and and their journey overall so uh with that being said our guest this week is jensen go from maryville university jensen how are you doing today I'm doing great. It's uh, my pleasure to be here, to have this discussion, and to be on this podcast. It's definitely an honor to be here. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. It's you know, you're an individual who I've looked up to for for a while now since getting into League of Legends with your experience with IMT Academy. And I, after doing some research, there's a ton. Like you have a wealth of experience and knowledge and all that good stuff. So for the viewers that don't necessarily know a ton about you, what's kind of the the snapshot or what's the um, main thing that you'd like people to know? So for those who know me from my YouTube channel, I do believe my most popular video is actually my worst split ever, where I took a team from um, a professional league into relegation. But other than that, I have coached in seven different countries. I, I actually think the number is eight or nine at this point point of time already, where I worked with uh, multiple teams in different languages. Uh, some of those highlights include making top six at MSI in 2018 with EVOS Esports, and then Worlds with Splice as part of the coaching staff in 2019, um, where I was m mostly in charge of uh, bot lane coaching for the bot lane at a point of time, and on top of that, helping out the Spice Vipers in the Spring Split turn around that their Super League Orange, which is their ERL equivalent. They were 8th place at a point of time, I turned around their season, helped them qualify for the playoffs, and then finish in first place for that Spring Split itself. So, uh, other than that, I've also uh, won the OPL in Australia, I've coached in China, coached in Taiwan, and I've mentioned Vietnam already at this point of time, so it's been all over the world at this point of time. I've collected the gym badges from all the various regions. Some people aspire to do it, uh, I'm just missing the Korean one at this point of time to get the complete set, and then I can finally challenge the Elite Four. There you go, perfect. Way way to put it into a into a Pokemon reference there. That's awesome. And yeah, with and that kind of leads into my kind of first question for you is given your wealth of coaching experience in those different regions like you had specified, what had made Maryville's open coaching position appealing to you? Um, I've been coaching for five years really at the point of time and I when I first started coaching I did tell myself, I'm gonna do this for three to five years. And uh, my decision to do some of these gigs, to, to go and coach at OPL, is um, coaching. It's not necessarily the most stable job. It's been it's been a year-to-year -year thing. It's been me moving to a different country every single year. Uh, every time people come and tell me, oh, wow, I'm so jealous of you. You get to travel the world. You get to do, do as they say, the Magic the Gathering in the past, where you got to play the game and see the world. But um, the reality of it is that I've been, I've been looking for a longer-term home. 
a lot of times I've been going to teams as a crisis firefighter of sorts, and I've never really had the chance to say, this is my long-term vision for something, this is my plans, and this is what I want to see and develop over a long period of time. Uh, Maryville University, they were giving me that type of, that type of free reign. So when, when they first uh, did the posting, I actually thought I missed the application because when I was that for models, that application had been around for quite a fair bit. They closed the applications already and I thought I actually missed it. But when Dan reached out to me and he said, hey, are you, will you be interested in doing this? I said, yo, why not? It seemed interesting. They flew me down to St. Louis to work with the players in, in, in person, to take a look at the place and stuff. And they told me that this is what I was going to be having here. I thought that this is something that would be so much more interesting. I've been working in the pro circuit. There's always been a lot of, uh, uh, you, had to do a, you had to do a lot of coddling of egos. There's a lot of firefighting. I could come in here and say, this is my vision of how I want to do to do things. And I'm told that for the longest period of time, this vision was about challenging the the Asian notion, right? Of after after having traveled the world, people seem to be subscribing to the Asian model of success because that is what Taiwan and China have been winning with, right? That you got to practice as many hours as possible, and that uh, practicing sixteen hours a day is the gold standard. And if you're able to innovate, that's considered finding a way to make your players play eighteen hours a day, and. I've always said that that's absolutely ridiculous. This idea of like having to play triple blocks, these double blocks and stuff like that. Yes, it is relevant when you're trying to peak for the for the relevant periods of time. But but this idea of how do you load the season, how do you peak for performance, is a very unexplored thing in in the world of esports. And through my conversations with performance uh co coaches. A lot of them come in and say that hey actually this isn't the case you don't necessarily want to be overloading players in such a manner and they also talk about being able to access different uh different routines to help players refresh the way they think about the game and i thought that this would be fantastic to try in a university setting because this is just tilling everything up to 11 in terms of what i have grown to believe in over my course of coaching over all these years it will be a reduced set of scrim uh, scrim loads, so we don't scrim the double blocks, we don't scrim the, the five, six hour blocks, we only do a three hour block. Uh, and on top of that, we have all this access to uh, campus resources, right? And the, the, the players I'm working with, they're not just playing the game in and out, they're going in there, they're having classes, they're living a balanced life, which is something I thought that was essential to being successful in this field. So... A lot of people consider this a step down. I see this as actually me exploring a possible, pioneering a possible innovation in terms of how people think and construct the way training is in esports. I think that that's a great way to look at it, right? Especially when you're looking at the collegiate or university level where, you know, a lot of these younger kids, they come in where they might not have necessarily had a ton of structure or a ton of support from a from a team that they may have played on in the past, right? Especially in league where it's so virtual, it's so online, to be in person, standing next to your teammate or sitting next to your teammate, having those interactions with each other outside of the game, I think is so important. And especially coming from a performance improving perspective where, hey, we don't have to play 18 hours a day, right? Like that's like to me that sounds super unhealthy. I played a lot of higher level traditional sports. So for me to think, oh, I would have to practice for 18 hours a day, like that that's just wrong, right? So um for for me it was more about seeing how can you make the the time that you might have like not limited time, but the limited time that you would have more effective because then at that point you're 
maximizing what you can do in a short period of time. Because like you had mentioned, these these kids do have, you know, school classes. They have things that they want to accomplish outside of school. They have social lives and they have a relationship that they're that they're in, right? So all these things putting them together, creating that balanced lifestyle, rather than just saying, Hey, you're gonna sit at a desk, you're gonna sit at a computer, and you're gonna stare at this game for eighteen hours a day. I, I would completely agree with you. It, it's it's tough to see how that could work in North America. Uh, but there are times where it's needed, right? Like if, if you are, again, trying to trying to uh, get to a point where you have to peak at the right time. And maybe you, you might be behind the eight ball a little bit. But for me, I thought it was crazy when people had mentioned that. I think it's about maximizing the time that you have rather than just spamming game after game after game after game. Um, oh, yes, definitely, right? And I have to say, though, 18 hours a day is a little bit of an exaggeration on my part, but when it comes to that 18 hours, uh, I have to say that it can work in some settings, right? And this is where we talk about leveraging the, the cultural aspects of, of performance. And I have to say that in, in the West in general, that's not necessarily the way to do, to do things. If you look at Asia, that's what people are more or less primed to do. Where, where if you look at countries, some of the, the Confucian cultures, like, like in Japan, you know, when you don't have work, you're expected to actually stay out um, and not return home until a certain point of time, or else the scene is shameful. So there's this idea about the amount of hours that you work in correlation to what's considered success. And then like school and all these other uh, institutional structures that are present in, in, in Asian culture, especially in the larger cities, you have players who, sorry, you have kids who go to school and then they go to uh, after school tuition after that. So there's this idea of these extended hours and the, the grind set that's implanted to them. So that approach is a lot more, they're a lot more attuned to that type of approach as compared to what's uh, being done in the West. And this question of what is the cultural advantages in North America itself? And in terms of sports, uh, Europe has that idea that everybody that comes from the same city, the same town, the same village, they'll play for the same football teams and stuff like that. But in, in NA itself, there's no specific sporting culture to speak of that is as universally spoken, like how uh, some Asians or some Europeans. I think I'm moving to kind of like um, general, general, generalizing or or uh, stereotyping territory over here. But the point I'm trying to to make here is that um, the schooling system, I think, is something that can be leveraged to get more out of players in any itself. And that's why I see, once again, it's a plus for collegiate as well, right? For sure, and I would agree, because like there are, you're, you have someone like at your program who's already in that learning stage. Like, hey, they're learning in class. They're learning, you know, they're in that point of, they're in that mindset where they're learning and absorbing information like a sponge. Let's see how that translates to esports and League of Legends in, in this particular case, right? Yeah, precisely. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So kind of going into my next question here is with Maryville having the amount of success that they've had in collegiate and in amateur, what were kind of expectations for yourself and the program overall? So the number one goal for Maryville is um, is to win collegiate League of Legends, right? And given the players that we had, some of them came to us and said, hey, how do I make, how do I make it a pro? So it's kind of interesting. So it's about balancing a lot of these ideas over there. And uh, to, to go back into it, right, it's about bridging these things together. So we came up with the vision for it, right, and the, the, the direction for the Maryville program, or, or at least under, under my charge, to, to, tie, to tie up everything again once again, right? There's, there's three key elements of it. 
The difference is that there has to be a balance, right? So th- this ties into everything that we've talked about so far. I don't want people to be overly obsessed with the game and just trying to have the blind pursuit of this one single goal. We talked about building systems at the very start of things. I read a player orientation package for them, and we talked about, uh, we went through the book Atomic Habits, and we talked about the importance of focusing and building systems rather than just focusing on goals itself. Uh, but when we talk about goals and along the way that I'm trying to help these players realize as well that with these advantages is once we build the systems, we will not only be able to win CELO, we'll also be looking at strong finishes, improving grounds itself. And hey, maybe if my tier week is true here, we could actually beat all the academy teams if we had the chance to do improving on itself. I know it's a little bit early to jump the gun at this point of time, but I truly believe that there is the potential for us to do that, given the roster that we have and the unique advantages that being in a collegiate system offers to the players. Sorry, and the other two elements, of course, would be to peak at the right time. So that's why we skipped on the first proving ground circuit so that we could make sure that everything's in balance. And that would be the third element of things. Sorry, it's balance. Uh, peaking at the sorry, the third element will be deliberateness, right? So this is something that we talked about. How do you get the most of all the time that we've had? So our approach to training is very different from what we have from with other teams. We try to make sure that every single scrim we have counts as much as possible, and the sort of deliberate practice that comes into play, where we come in, where I have to, where I'm even leveraging the, the schooling system once again. I'm giving homework. I'm doing drills with these players, to, which is something that's a lot more within the element of a school itself. Whereas giving homework to the pro players in that type of setting, it actually evokes a very, um, it can evoke quite a negative response from them at times which is something that I experienced when I went from Taiwan to, to China. So in 2017, I started my pro coaching career. I coached in the LMS and I took some of those ideas and I brought it over to uh, the side of the team in the, back then it was the LSPL, right? And the players weren't necessarily receptive to it because I thought that they would all be culturally similar. And I evoke once again a very teacher, very lecture, uh, lecture tutorial homework style of doing things. And so, and the players at a point of time, I, I got the wrong read of the room. They tell me that, hey coach, I hate the school so much, that's why I dropped out of school to pursue League of Legends. You made me feel like I've gone back to school. So there's a certain transcendental power that you can borrow when you apply things in the right place, where where a institution like school can evoke a certain amount of coaching credibility or power as a coach right but if you execute it in the wrong places you get very negative responses from it because it's not what people are used to or they have a, or they're very negative sentiments or attachments to a school itself so you have to be careful when you apply this but naturally in the university setting the players are pre-attuned they're pre-prime to 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 going to school so my approach of teaching the game, my approach of executing this type of like, I'm going to teach you something, I'm going to test for it, I'm going to give you homework to do, worked extremely well with them. Yeah, for sure. I know this went on a complete segue, but I hope uh, you put off by rambling. I just tend to start on something and just completely go off a separate tangent. I'm sorry to cut you off once again. Yep. No, that's okay. Hey, so the, the way that I see it is that you're providing a ton of value, especially when this episode releases. You're providing a ton of value to other collegiate programs just by talking about the subject, right? Where some, I think that some teams or or even not necessarily just collegiate programs, but even amateur programs, right, can take a lot of value about what you're talking about right now. And they can internalize what you're saying and, and say, hey, how can we make our program better at, you know, amateur team or in collegiate by using some of these thought process, processes, right? Um, 
so for me, it's like, hey, continue with. The, I wouldn't even call it rambling. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying you're preaching at this point. So, um, it's all, it's all good there. And yeah, if I, I do not mind the tangents whatsoever. Um, so getting to my next question, uh, with coaching academy in the previous split, and then with your experiences in in the other regions. What's kind of your insight or the your opinion on the talent gap between academy and then the top of amateur, the top of collegiate? What's it like to have players that are both that are in collegiate but also trying to chase a path to professional play? Um, this comes once again with the unique challenges of working in the collegiate program, right? I have some players over here who have huge aspirations. They are here and they think that in, in one year, in, in two years, they're going to have a huge opportunity to try to get into that uh, pro play space. And then on, there's a sliding skill starts and then you have the players who are in the middle where if it comes, it comes. There are players who have had the taste of it. So in the case of Shady and Nulls, and it's like, if LCS wants me, we'll go. If, uh, if there's a good academy offer, they'll go. If not, they're not too, they're not, they're not biting at the reins. It's like any opportunity, I'm going to put my school on hold and I'm going to go and pursue those opportunities, right? But if there's a the right opportunity and they think the setup's right for them, they, they'll definitely go for it. And I can't, I can't speak for, for, for all of the players, right? Because when I know that these statements might affect people's perceptions of it. So in general, just assume all of them want to do it. But I have to say that for, for some players, they're more of like, you know what? I'm here. I play lots of League of Legends. Uh, the, the pro life, it's tempting. It looks fun. But maybe if I'm not going to be able to be an LCS level player or something, maybe completing school is for the better, right? So there's some of sure. these ideas out there, uh, out there as well. But um, the, the way I look at it is some of the players that, that I have here is also a question of how, how do players, um, how do people look at talent and how do people uh, assess talent? And I think that this is one of the areas where I've been very different as a coach, where there's been this very large paradigm and uh, from some of the Western coaches who look at the greatest Western player. Uh, and I, I think for the longest period of time, uh, they saw that as caps, right? When Caps came on the scene in 2018, everybody started to talk about how do we find the next Caps? And that's been dominating the conversation for, for the next two years. And they, they look at Rookie, they look at Caps, they look at Chovy, and they selected for mechanics and ability to team fight. I think there's a lot of interviews out there from coaches who say that you cannot teach a uh, passive player to be more aggressive, but you can teach an aggressive player how to rein it in. Uh, in my experiences, actually, I have gone the other way around, where my experiences are the opposite, right? Where I don't necessarily select for mechanics, and the players that I look to uh, look up to are the likes of Maple, the likes of uh, Doe and B, where I select for uh, all the likes of Perks in this case, which is the more recent example, where I I select my talent based on players' ability to conceptualize the game, players' ability to then see things and understand their role and answer the question, what is my job as a top laner, as a jungler, as a mid laner in this game of League of Legends? rather than their ability to have raw hands and go in there and out and fight people. For the longest period of time, I've always felt that um, AP and Jojo are two, two sides of the different coin, right? Where I very highly value one player's skill set, and I think the, the, the coaching convention, the paradigm at this point of time, highly values the other. Not to say that one is, is bad at the other, right? But the outstanding skills of APA is ability to conceptualize things and play the map. And for Jojo Pen, it has been as mechanics. And it showed when Jojo Pen was picked up in Academy to play in EG, uh, to play in EGA last year. And he went in there 
And the, the map player was a little bit questionable, but he was going in, taking these fights and fighting, and it looked really exciting, right? And APA in the last year as well, he's, he's playing, he's playing on stage, he's playing with Resolve, and they're all macroing some of these academy teams who are, who are training full-time professionally as well. So the question is, what do you really value in the player, and how do you measure for talent? And this is one of the questions that people are constantly trying to update. And just that in the way that I coach the game, the way that I teach the game, I value one over the other. Of course, there is a certain bar to mechanical execution that you have to cross. Like the same way that they would say that if you're in the mechanics department, there's a certain bar that you have to cross in the ability to, to conceptualize the game. But it's just a question of what's the what's the top priority, what's your selection metrics in terms of how do you how do you answer the question of what is talent, right? Is the ever nebulous question, is it this black box of what mechanics is, is that the ability to innovate, is it the ability to simply be clutch when time matters? And in my experience, it's I've always found it to be the other way around. I've always had players who are too aggressive, like what you saw in our models uh, academy last year, right? They took my system. They were too aggressive with it, and they didn't know how to dial it back in. So it's been the opposite problem of me, rather that I've constantly been facing throughout my career, rather than it being the other way around, where players were too passive and they missed too, too many opportunities. In fact, what I always tell my players is that it's okay to miss the opportunities, because if you do things right in the system, better opportunities or, or good opportunities will continue to come your way. I think that by you just describing the way that different players play or see the game or value mechanics over let's call it not macro play but conceptualizing the game i think that i would agree in your point where there's obviously a specific mechanics threshold that you have to that you have to meet of course or else you know you're not going to be at, at that high level of play but i feel as though i would completely agree with the conceptualizing the game prospect or portion because when you're playing a game your fight or flight response is going to take over Right. And what would you rather have someone who's just going to have really good mechanics or going to be able to fully understand what's going on in the game, what potential options they may have for themselves and not limit their thinking. Right. Cause at that same portion, if someone who's just inherently aggressive and over aggressive will just go in and be like, Oh, I thought I saw something. Well, the other player who meanwhile might not be as aggressive thought of, you know, who do we see on the map? What vision do we have? What objectives are coming up? Like, the, the consequences of their actions and then going a step further and thinking consequences of the enemy's actions. How do we, how do we take advantage of this? So to speak. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with the conceptualizing the game portion. I feel like um, I, I've worked, I work with Lucian uh, who was their, the coach of resolve last year. And in the conversations I've had with him about conceptualizing the game, especially with APA in, in particular have been, have been amazing. And so like, obviously it's a great, to have a play- it's great to have a player like that on your program who's always thinking about different ways to conceptualize the game. So I would like I would completely agree with 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 what you're looking at and I would agree that it's the a lot of people love the flashing mechanics but they don't necessarily understand what the cost of that may be if 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 that's fair to say. That's what you say is the the cost of it, right? It's just a question of uh, like like I said, it's a selection criteria. That's it. And what's the starting point of that selection criteria? Um, it is interesting they mentioned the fight or flight response though, because this is where when when do start to go into the systems that that I I implement. 
what I always do at the start before I've mapped this, I talk, talk, talk about things as, um, in terms of coaching and in terms of being a player in esports, there's kind of like four domains that you need to do, right? And this is borrowing some inspiration for from football where this is uh, not, uh, sorry, not American football. I forgot that this is an American podcast. It's, it's well. International okay. soccer, right? Yeah. Um, that there's this coach for... I think it's Borussia Dortmund, and he says that football is thirty percent tactics, and it's seventy uh, percent is everything else, right? Seventy percent of seventy percent of his man management and everything else. And I, my numbers for this slightly different. I'll say twenty five percent is only the in game knowledge portion of things, because it's split things up into four separate domains. And when we talk about a fight or flight response, that deals with the performance domain. It's the uh, second quarter of what we deal with, right? So this deals with. What do we do to regulate performance? Uh, how how do we regulate sleep, diet, and handle emotions? And this is usually the domains of where all these fantastic uh, performance coaches that I've talked to in the past, past like uh, Martina from the Mad Lions or, or or Robert, who I worked with from, from Models Academy, who they are very good and strong insights into these areas, right? So, um, fight or flight response isn't necessarily what you necessarily want to have because if you're experiencing that you have a player who's overly stressed who's overly stimulated and what what uh one of the exercises I, that i get my players to do is that i got them to watch the true side documentary from dora 2. it's fantastic to get league of legends players to, to watch that because they won't talk about or analyze anything that's happening in the dota game and they just focus on the communication that's happening between uh the two captains at the point of time of course there's a certain um editorialization of that and the way everything is shot and presented in a one-hour documentary of sorts. But the, the exercise was to get the, them to compare how Seb, the captain of OG, was talking to his team to regulate for this aspect of performance and how Kuroki was going in there. And he communicates what I would say like the average League of Legends player does, right? Uh, the average pro League of Legends player does. Let's go in there. These guys are trash. We're going to smash them. We're going to absolutely dominate them. They're playing like monkeys. We're going to crush them and stuff like that. The, the type of self-thought that would regulate to its increased levels of stimulation, right? Whereas Seb is going over there, he has a teammate that's absolutely choking it, bottling it, forgets the buyback in the first game, and he's able to regulate that and bring that down to the level of, um, of effective performance. So the way that they talk and the physical activity they're having with one another, of course, the thing that stood out to everybody in the exercise is that these little players, they're chain smokers, but uh, that's besides the point. <laughs> It's it's about understanding this these domains of performance, right? If you're a teammate, what does it mean to be a teammate? How do you regulate for your teammates' performances and um and and tackle all these type of things? So it's not just about coaching the in-game aspects of things. It's about restructuring communications, restructuring uh, team environments, right? Which brings me actually over to the third, third domain because these things are kind of inter interlinked as well. What are the the relationships? between players what's the relationship between players and how they keep each other accountable the relationship between players and coaching staff and what the dynamic looks like right and of course the fourth domain is the systems domain which is my uh, personal um, area of strength where as early as uh, my second year of coaching i was really trying to write out things about how do i make things so replicatable in the space of esports coaching, I was writing out standard operating procedures and that's what I was trying to do, right? Like, if I'm only going to be here working with a team for for one split, if I leave, if I leave this team, how can I continue to employ the good practices that I've come up with? And that's where uh, it really touches into the systems domain that doesn't necessarily deal with what are we doing, but rather the how are we doing things.
Yeah, because I think that once players can understand the how, like how we're doing things, and then they can in- internalize the why it's happening as well, I think that you, players just are going to inherently improve more, right? And, and especially when it comes to, you know, being a better teammate, how you're communicating, and I would completely agree. I think that there's a lot of communication that happens in League of Legends that is completely unnecessary. Where <laughs> I don't think that you need to degrade the other team. I think that you can just simply say, hey, they're pushing their wave when they don't need to be, or just for lack of a better term, or hey, their bottling condition's bad. Not all these guys are these guys are terrible. They're pushing their lane when they don't need to be, right? Like it's just so much more complicated and 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 convoluted when you can just be straight to the point and then execute rather than just creating creating points of tension or creating uh, spikes in tension when there just there just doesn't need to be, right? Well, I mean. Um, uh... There, there is a role and there's a purpose for for aggressive, um, aggressive. Okay, aggressive communication is uh, can be interpreted in many ways, right? But in this term, case, aggressive language you being used in communication, right? Because we talked about players who are overly stimulated. There is the flip side of that where your players who are understimulated as well. And this is experiences that you experience both of when you play so Okay, when you're overly stimulated, it's like what you talked about. You choke or you freeze up, right? That's the fight or flight response talking. But on the other hand, if you're not stressed or if you're not stimulated enough, you autopilot, right? You've all had that experience mm-hmm. where you just walked out to Lane, it's like, what am I even doing here? And then you just randomly die, and it's like, well, my, my brain just blanked for, for 30 seconds over there, right? And that's the autopilot speaking, and that and that is something that happens more when you're not stimulated enough. So, the type of language you use, so this touches into this area that I had some exposure to when I was back in college myself, I was studying as a uni- university student where we talk about neural linguistic programming in NS application to his coaching. So there, there is a place for different types of languages in terms of how, of how you regulate for this type of behavior and responses accordingly. So it's not to say that these things are always going to be wrong all of the time, uh, but you have to understand that what is the function of such communication and what is the impact it has on your teammates. But in general, I can agree with you, right? Why clock up comms with redundant types of things and... Uh, I personally prefer to have the regulation be done outside of the game rather than have it being an active process in game itself because people's ability to have such a read of the situation where they're focusing on their mechanics, their laning, the minimap and stuff like that isn't going to be the best. For sure, there's definitely a time and place to talk, time and place, sorry, to talk about communication when it comes to how you're communicating with your teammates. Because yeah, like when you're in game, like that's not. The time to correct communication, right? <laughs> like you had mentioned, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of times that you know you're focused on other things, and and I would completely agree. Um, just kind of moving on to a different question now. Um, with players that ha- like, because you have a ton of players that have a lot of experience in your program, right? Uh, different levels. So with those players that have a ton of experience, whether it be in LCS or a lot of amateur play or, or things of that nature. What do you believe is the biggest ap- aspect of the coaching position that helps them for their, for a level of improvement? Because when you're looking at players that have reached that, you know, highest level or who have gotten there, um, it's not like you're going to teach them anything new about their specific champions, so to speak, right? And talking in generic terms, you may, it might happen. It might not. Right. But at that level, it's like, what what do you believe is the most important thing to help players improve uh, when they've had that sort of success or been at that level? 
So, um, if I go into the specific details of it, it can be a little bit uh, can can be a little bit dry, but the idea is that I have this thing called the numbers system, right? Which is I will, uh, which is what I call the kind of the grand theory of how to conceptualize and understand the game, uh, with, with regards to what's being done in the top leagues around the world today. So uh, I'm bringing them that I'm showing them that hey, this is how the LPL teams are playing. This is how we can create and scaffold these things into replicatable structures that we can apply, learn, and then execute if we understand the game through these steps. So there's three grand theories. Uh, uh, sorry, not not three grand theories. There's three big approaches as to how teams play the game. Right? There's three big types of team compositions. You can play a Drake stacking composition, which is how Dawn won one worlds in 2020. You can play a uh, scaling team fight composition, which is everybody's favorite in uh, academy and amateur. Right? You have the Orn in the top lane, the Oriana in the mid lane, and the Aphilus in the bot lane. And what do you do? You wait for 30 minutes. It's like, yep, time's up, guys. It's skill o'clock. And there's the two Olympic composition, which is what the LPL teams, uh, or rather, what FPX won worlds with in twenty, uh, in twenty nineteen. And I think this what uh, EDG EDG used a mix of these type of tactics for the most recent worlds victory. But there's three big approaches to the game itself, and these are the three big topics that I teach teach the team. So I have a syllabus for them, and I say that in order to understand two Olympic, these are the things that you have to understand. These are the setups that you have to understand, and these are the timings that we're playing to it. If we're talking about Drake stacking, these are the key elements of executing a Drake stacking team composition. So I'm providing that context for them, and then I let them fill in the blanks themselves with the interpretation of the champions. Of course, at the start, my request for them is to tone it down a little bit on the optimization side of things, understand the key ideas, what are the 100% plays, and then from there, you guys find the optimizations accordingly, right? So there, there's definitely things that I'm value-adding towards them, and the, the way that I've been able to present things to them. Of, of, at the start, I was really, really worried about um, teaching them some of these things as well, because this was my experience working with some of the more veteran players, is that they aren't necessarily the most receptive. They have gone through like three years, four years, five years of coaches telling them that this objective is the most important thing in the game, Peril is useless, Drake is the most important. And then for them to be able to to, to deconstruct those accordingly and then reconstruct them in the new system of ideas, that's a little bit of challenge. And that's what I experienced when I was coaching Immortals Academy last year. Uh, whereas I was actually really surprised that the players I worked with this year, they don't necessarily have those challenges. They they, they came in there, they're very open, they found the structure, they were very receptive to it, so they understood that uh, it clicked for them really, really quickly. And I think that that's one of the reasons why uh, I was able to get buy-in from them so, so, so quickly because they they looked at the things that I was presenting. It made sense to them. The presentation came across uh, well well to them. And in fact, it's one of the pieces of feedback that Shady gave me as well. Is that when I first worked with him at uh, Proving Grounds, so when in the in the capacity of models at a point of time, at the start of 2020, I did a a crash course of like this is how you play League of Legends 101, and they felt that oh, those just very basic things. But once I went into the the, the deeper details of things that I did with the Maryville team, he felt that okay, there's there's some substance to what's being done over here. So he, they very quickly bought into all of this, and I think that that has helped me immensely in working with the Maryville teams. Yeah, and it's for for players to have, especially players at that level, to have buy-in right away it must make you feel pretty good as a coach right yeah it does i mean it's a. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you feel that 
the vibe just clicks when it clicks fast. I had that when I worked with Legacy in 2020. The the players saw it, they saw the ideas that I was having. They bought into it very quickly, and we and I have to say that was my best split ever in my career coaching. It was actually the one split in the OPL. Although a lot of people uh, don't necessarily hold in the highest regard, I would even say that that achievement and what i thought i accomplished within the team in the one split itself it beats out the uh what people would consider more prestigious achievements of like taking games of team liquid fanatic and msi with evos or or the work that i did with spice you know it's an amazing story eight place to first place in the sl itself but it's not um it didn't i didn't i felt that i didn't have the same impact then as i had with the players in the opl uh with legacy and I have to say that this feels like a very similar start to that. Is lots of buy into the system, people are committed towards it, and you don't have this um, flip flopping. It's like yeah, maybe we don't want to do this instead. Maybe we should be copying what this other team in this other region is doing instead. So it's a, uh, I'm feeling it. The mem- the momentum is coming, and this is why I I'm able to I have this optimism in my projections towards the future. And especially when. And it's interesting that you say that the that the split that you had in the OPL was was kind of your like crowning achievement, right? Like that was the one that you hold in a high regard. Because um, uh, for most people, that pro- they probably wouldn't think of that right right away. Um, but to have the buy-in not from just one roster, from two rosters, right? Like because you you got ten players that are all incredibly talented, were playing at Maryville. So what are the what are like the challenges that you faced while going through pl- like coaching basically two separate rosters? Oh wow! The first thing is that I uh, <laughs> I'm at risk of not having an off day, you know, because we talked about balance and things like that. So one team says that, hey, we want to take the off day on this one day because it's better for for their classes, it's better for their schedule. And then the, another team says that actually we want to do the off day on this other day itself, so I couldn't unite that. So um, it just happened that I could take yesterday off, so it's not a complete disaster for me in terms of my own balance and my personal life. But uh, it's definitely a lot of juggling, right? And but once again, it's having systems that are replicatable that actually makes it a lot easier for me to to handle both teams at the same time. Um, of course, there is a certain uh, one for my attention from both sides for me to look in there and be able to correct things and uh, at a more uh, higher pace of intensity. But being able to split these players up into two teams, it actually it actually gives me a lot of unique advantages, right? Because we had this team selection process after PGCQ1, where we went in there and said, okay, now that we have AP and Zyko being added to the roster, we brought in Pi as a 10th man, and then we did a team selection exercise to split into two teams. And there was a few ways I could have thought about doing it, but in the end, we split the teams the way that they were, so that I could select for what I call the laundry list accordingly. What were the shared laundry of the problems for both teams? And you would see that the, the squad with uh, Shady and Nulls, um, they're, they're, very, with, they're very communicative. Sorry, they're very verbal players. They're very vocal players. That's the word I'm looking for. They are able to express the ideas. They, ability, they, they are able to make lots of calls in the game itself. And they have a very strong conceptualization of the game already. So for me, if I give them my system, they're able to take that. They're able to optimize and they're able to run with it very easily. Whereas for the other guys, it's a lot about, more about working on communication. It's about how do you understand the system and be able to apply it. And the way I approach these two teams is also slightly different from, from one another in terms of fitting these things to the task at hand. So um, there was this split and the way that I uh, tackle the problems for, for, for both these teams are different because they have different problems across both of them. right? For, for one of them, it's about uh, toning, reeling in the aggression, right? For 
The other is well, how do they see the aggressive opportunities and create the aggressive opportunities for themselves. And with regards to that, it's um, it's requires a different approach accordingly. So it's a, it's a little bit all over, all over the place, this answer, but definitely in terms of challenges, there, there are, but I actually see this as more advantageous, right? And for the longest period of time, I've always said that, it, there, that I've always believed that um, redundancy is good in sports so that I'm able to swap players in and out. And I think that people have always talked about 10-man rosters, they don't work, they don't work, but that's because they may, they didn't have, they probably didn't have a, as strong a system as I did, where you could have players go in and out and have this uh, element of plug and play, right? And I think that in the Collegiate League of Legends system, I would actually say that a 10-man roster would even be essential for these rosters to, to succeed. Because if you're you're able to do this, then you're able to achieve the balance aspect of things really well. Where if I have one player who falls sick, who has a major test on the next day, who needs to go for a wedding, he needs to needs to attend to certain uh, important family functions, right? I can just look at these the the his alternate and bring him in, and they can play with him without a significant loss in terms of understanding of the game, in terms of. Uh, I would say that the broad term of synergy is overly used, but I would say that there wouldn't be a huge reduction in terms of that because all of these guys play the same system. They will understand like what's happening at the end of the day and it's simply just grouping them based on like, hey, you guys need to work more on these aspects. You guys need to work more on these other aspects. And as long as people understand like what the challenges uh, each other player is facing, they should be able to more than be able to compensate for that accordingly. And that makes a ton of sense to me, right? Because as a coach, you're like, hey, I get to work with two completely groups of people and teach the same system. It's something that's replicatable that you've mentioned a few times already. Um, so it, it just creates an easier process, not an easier process, sorry, but a more replicatable, a smoother process for yourself, right? And especially when you have players at this talent level where, you know, they are already talented in, the, in their own in their own minds, right? And then they're in their own standings so based off of where they're playing. and, and their ranks and everything. So you're going to be able to have a bigger impact because you're teaching 10 people, right? Not just five, right? Uh, definitely. And, and and within that, I get to iterate day to day to day, right? I can look at this and say that, hey, this is what one team is doing. This is what the other team is doing. And uh, once again, from a coaching perspective, it also compensates for the fact that we are playing uh, a lesser number of games a day because uh, one of the disadvantages of scrimming lesser number of games is that you get to see less things as well right and 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 as a result of that uh by having two teams scrim once again instead of playing instead of only seeing five games a day i will watch one team play and i'll watch the other team play and i'll watch back the votes of the other team playing so i can give them individual uh, individualized feedback or, or team feedback that i that I just post in the, in the in the discord chat accordingly right so I'm actually still seeing six games of six games a day in terms of like what what my players are doing and in terms of like how they are applying the systems and my approach to it. So if there's something wrong in the system, I can say, hey, okay, maybe this is something that's wrong with the system, or maybe this is something that you guys don't understand about the system, and this is something that we can address in the next lesson that I have planned for them. For sure, and it's like it's it must be. It must be nice for for yourself because then you're able to go and you're able to say, hey, I know I have three games from this team. I know I have three games from this team. And not, let's say, imagine if teams are booking double blocks. Like, you'd have to review six games from each team or, you know, nine games from each team to where it would become a point where how much are you able to get through 
and still have effective criticism and feedback. Oh, I mean, of course, if when we talk about peaking, as you approach uh, the the final few weeks of Proving Grounds, uh, or as you approach the Proving Grounds tournament itself, as you approach Sea Law, uh, that will be happening, and that's the type of workload that I'll, I'll, I will have to do. So when they start to to do the double block for for the peak, for for the peaking aspects of things, then that's when I will have to review that twelve games a day, right? And it's something that. I'm able to do it. In fact, that's pretty much my entire life as a coach, you know? Like, right now, it's just that instead of, like, watching the LPL or or watching what Excel's playing in the LEC or some of the other things that teams that I find interesting around the world, I'll just spend that time watching my own guys play instead. For sure. And it's like, there's obviously that time where you're trying to peak for performance and go for that, right? And it comes to a point where you're going to end up accomplishing what you need to accomplish when you have that short period of time. But in the meantime, it's not like you're overloading yourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, so, last question I got for you: what are the what are the biggest surprises that you've had while transitioning from um, professional play or play in different regions and even academy to uh, to collegiate? Well, I was to see this as professional play of sorts, right? It's just in a very different setting altogether. Uh, I'm surprised at how well things have gone, actually. In fact, I- I'm always asking my players, hey, I'm helping you guys so much as a coach. I hope you guys can help me out um, learn more about coaching as well. Give me some feedback and tell me about, hey, these are things that you're doing wrong. These are things that we found a little bit annoying. And I'm a little bit surprised that things have been going um, so well. I expect a little bit more hiccups along the way. And I... And in the process of like changing the guard, right? Because this wasn't a roster that I, I fully fully hired. I only got two players. I only brought two players in. I inherited the rest of the roster, right? If you call Pi, who I brought in as our, as our tenth man, I was only brought in three players effectively, right? When I'm inheriting seven players, so I expected there to be a lot of cultural pushback, a lot of uh, even say conceptualization pushback in terms of what was already existing within the team. So I was actually really surprised that they were able to to, to once again bind so quickly and adopt and um, and just be able to do and execute on this vision so well. So that uh, that's what I have to say is the biggest surprise. And I'm actually so thankful for it. Like like right now, I'm not even in the US. I'm not in St. Louis at this point of time. I'm stuck like waiting for my visa to be processed. And it's 5 a.m. here in Singapore. I've been working um these crazy hours. So I've been working a double time zone. And I'm super, super thankful that I've had the opportunity that Dan has given, that Clerky has given me this opportunity, that Merrifield has been this supportive of the things that I'm doing, not just in terms of the players, but the staff and everybody as well. Is once again, is this perfect storm of things coming together? Uh, I don't want to jump the gun and say that we are going to win Worlds. We, we obviously cannot qualify for Worlds, but <laughs> you get my drift here, right? For sure. There's <laughs> high expectations. You want to win and play at the highest level. I completely understand it. It's... It it just shows your commitment overall to the to the school and to the roster and to the players. The fact that hey, you know, visa's not approved. I'm still waking up on their time, and and, and you're you know five a.m. That that's one that's one early of a wake up, and I appreciate the time for sure. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty amazing, you know, to, to see your guys' success, especially with the changing of the of the head coach and everything like that. Like you guys are currently undefeated in the North Conference, and it it, it just goes to show how how great of a transition it's been so far. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see how well you guys perform throughout the rest. And um, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a pretty amazing um, 
nationals nationals tournament that because there's a lot of talented teams, but yeah, everyone's got to watch out for your ten man roster. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people are expecting us to just say, "Hey, we're gonna run these five players," but I'm gonna just put it out there. Spoiler warning: We're gonna be mixing it up. We're gonna be swapping players in and out. And once again, diversity of strategy is something that's gonna be hit. Is something that we are gonna be hitting people with. So if you look at our players, different players at different fucking picks, right? They're gonna come on, and you have to be in your toes for them. Hey, you've given everyone a warning, so now if it happens, you can say, "Hey, I gave you guys a warning. I told you it was gonna happen." So yeah, that that's uh, hey, that's awesome, and and I think that thinking outside the box or having a traditional or not traditional, having the ten man roster allows you to have some uh, liberties that other rosters may not. So I know that you're an incredibly busy guy, uh, and I know that you got scrims coming up. So uh, we'll let you get off to those. But where can people find you on the internet, Jensen? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at JensenGoLol, or they can go to my YouTube channel. Let me just figure out what the link of it is called again. I'll have it linked for people, so it won't be a problem. Yeah, just yeah hey, that's yeah, <laughs> hey, that, that's not a problem. I'll make sure you get the recognition and the and the exposure that that you deserve, and and I'll try to see how much I can get for you. But it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the time, Jensen, and I wish you all the best with your season. All right. Thank you. Once again, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for giving me this platform. Hey, thank you. That That's amazing. It was always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, best of luck in scrims and moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to episode number seven of Running the Rift, a League of Legends podcast. Make sure to go check out Jensen and Maryville University at their Twitters that are linked in the episode description, as well as Jensen's YouTube channel. Honestly, a ton of value. You're going to learn so much about League and about concepts in general. It blew my mind when I checked it out, so I highly, highly, highly recommend you guys check it out. Uh, but with that being said, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. You can find us at Running the Rift uh, on Twitter as well as on Medium, uh, where there will be more articles coming out with some behind-the-scenes look and some extra value for you guys. So uh, with that being said, have a great night, everybody, and we'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode.